0: Hello, and welcome to the NLP Highlights podcast, where we talk about interesting work in natural language processing. The hosts are Matt Gardner and Pradeep Dasigi from the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence. All right, today our guest is Samir Singh, who is an assistant professor at the University of California, Irvine. It turns out I actually have an office from him down the hall, and I work with Samir a lot. It's good to have you on the program with us today, Samir. Nice to be here. Thanks
1: for inviting me.
0: Samir has done a lot of work over many years on interpretation methods for neural net models or machine learning models in general, trying to figure out why models make the predictions that we do. And so today we thought it would be interesting to have Samir on talking to us about why this problem is interesting and how people solve it. So I guess, Samir, can you tell us what do we mean when we, when we talk about interpretations in NLP or machine learning generally?
1: I think generally speaking, interpretations of a model can mean a lot of different things. Uh, I think people have been looking at trying to design models that provide interpretability, uh, trying to get a global understanding of what the model is doing and things like that. But the stuff that I've been most interested in is what I guess some people are calling instance level interpretations or instance uh, based predictions, where what you're really interested in is why did a model make a specific prediction? And that's been the sort of focus
0: of a lot of what we've been doing. And why is this something that people should care about?
1: So instant level predictions or interpretations in general tend to be useful for many different things. I think from when we started doing this work, we realized that these black box models or machine learning models tend to make really accurate looking predictions But in many cases, that's just not enough as an evaluation metric, and I think the community really really understands that now, and it's ingrained into more recent PhD students. But when we started doing this stuff, it wasn't quite as obvious. So initially, we were thinking of it as a really good additional evaluation metric. Um, Like, If I have the predictions, yes, that's a signal for how good the model is doing. But if I also know why the model is making a prediction, that could potentially be considered another way to evaluate the models. So that was how we started doing it. Soon after a different use case came up, where we, instead of evaluation, we started thinking of it as debugging, where anytime a model made an error, we were able to go in and see why it made that error. And that helped us understand what were potentially problems, either in the training data or in the model and so on. I think, more general use case a broader use case, which people are striving for, is just to get users uh, from a user-centric view, get more confident or more informed about how the model model is making its decision. So this is useful for many different things, but you can imagine in most key applications of machine learning, the user is still in the loop, and often they're looking at the output of some model and trying to make a higher level decision, Based on those predictions, so if they have more information about why the model is making doing something, it would just lead to a much better human computer collaboration. So there's been some work on that, and also not so much in NLP. There are a few standouts, but I think from an HCI or even a user interface point of view, interpretations can be pretty useful.
0: I guess a, a canonical example in the last thing that you talked about is like medical use cases. If I'm Making a prediction that a doctor is going to use, then um you really want to be confident that the model predicted something for the right reason. Yes, that, that's a good
1: application of it. Yes,
0: and so uh, I, then to summarize what you said, there are a few different ways, uh, a few different motivations for why uh, you might care about these instance-level predictions. Like maybe I'm user, say in a medical use case, like we just talked about, or. If it's predicting something for the wrong reason, I think you hinted at this, though we didn't—you didn't say it explicitly. But if, if a model is predicting something from for the wrong reason, then even like from a machine learning academic, I'm looking at toy problem kind of perspective, I probably won't generate the model. Probably won't generalize as well if it's caught on some you might call spurious pattern in the input data and is pr- making the right prediction for the wrong reason.
1: Yeah, that, that's a good way to phrase it. I think we use accuracy as a proxy for a generalization. And we know that that's not quite enough. And explanations or interpretations of predictions can give you a little bit more insight. And yes, if there are spurious relations, accuracy might look good, but explanations, good explanations would not. And that's one of the use cases.
0: Okay, so I, I hope we've convinced people that, that understanding why a model makes the predictions that it makes is, is an interesting and important problem. Why is this hard? why why can't we just know a priori what's going on inside the model
1: yeah so this is a very interesting question because it has increasingly become harder and harder to uh, do these things but i think the at the at the very first step even describing or defining what an explanation is is quite difficult especially when you start thinking about okay what is the optimization problem that one is trying to solve i think in a sort of higher level what the user needs is quite important you but somewhat easy to define. So you can say things like, you know, what is important for the model? That's very easy to say in English, but when you start thinking about, okay, what is the equation that defines importance, then it gets a little bit tricky. So I think the biggest challenge in interpretability is to define what interpretability is in itself. And I think one of the reasons that makes it difficult is because since we talked about all these different use cases, many different use cases, need different kinds of explanations so when you come up with an explanation technique they may be more useful for evaluation than for increasing a user's trust in the model sometimes they can be at odds because for evaluation you want something that's very very accurate to the model but from a probably user centric point of view something that's too accurate may actually show more of the problems with the models than than increase the user's trust so there are all these trade-offs in just defining the model.
0: And on that point, the most accurate description of what the model is doing is just the model weights itself and all of the internal computations. And that clearly is incomprehensible to most users. So yeah, like there's there's definitely this trade-off.
1: Definitely, yeah. I think the trade-off is even more, there's a spectrum of even what the user knows and what the user likes. And uh, prediction is something that anybody can understand, maybe, well, we're not very good with probabilities, but let's keep that aside. Uh, but you can imagine some people just want like an English sentence version of the explanation. Some people like decision trees, some people like a nice flowchart, some people like to read code. And when you have all these different, I guess, modalities of what people like to consume, uh, it's tricky to define what the good explanation might be. And of course, this might depend on the task itself. There is no reason to think that an explanation for NLI even if it's perfect it would be the same form of explanation would work for something like reading comprehension or machine translation and so on
0: is this a problem that's like unique to modern deep learning neural net kinds of methods or did we have this problem back in the days when everything was a linear model are those easier to interpret or is there something else missing
1: I think there are a couple of different reasons why interpretability has sort of taken everybody's attention recently. One of them is definitely what you bring up. I think linear models, at least by directly having a coefficient for each of your input features, seem like they would be interpretable and you could probably build on top of that to have approximations that would give you other sort of things that you need from a visualization or interpretability point of view. But I think the biggest sort of push for interpretability has been when things have become nonlinear, where, you know, you must have seen in your introductory neural network models, essentially what's happening is input is getting projected through some non-linear transformation, and then you have a linear boundary in this space. Well, in that non-linear projection, a lot of things might be happening, and that's what interpretability really cares about, not just about the sort of final decision boundary. So. Interpreting something like that becomes difficult, especially when you talk about universal functional approximators, well, then they can get incredibly complicated, and the users still need to be able to understand that. The other main reason interpretability has sort of got a lot of focus is honestly, these systems have been getting really, really accurate, and their use case in in real-world applications is just increasing. And we as machine learning people, some people are excited by this, but some people are a little bit like, wait, they're using machine learning. For that application, that seems a little bit dangerous, and so I think interpretability has been another way to sort of think about bringing some more sanity to applying machine learning to more applications. And I think that's been another push for why explainability has been the center of focus.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. Pushing it real quick, going back to the linear models, you get the the I guess you hear a lot that linear models are inherently just better, like we want a linear approximation because it's more interpretable or we want to like distill some complex model into a linear version because then I can interpret everything. But is is that really true? Because I feels like even a linear model there, if you have overlapping features in any way, then you could get correlations that are hard to interpret. What do you think about this?
1: Yeah, that is true. I think it sort of all depends on how many features are going into your linear model. I think I would say linear models that get too many features. When you're talking about thousands of features and looking at coefficients of this, a lot of things get quite complicated. So, like you brought up the fact that yes, there may be overlapping features, feature correlations, and the logistic regression or whatever will sort of spread out the weight over all of them. So, you as a interpreter needs to understand what the data distribution is like, needs to understand what the feature correlations might be, in order to even understand what that explanation is. And yes, that's one of the problems i think some of the other problems that i faced when i i tried to interpret linear models back in the day was mostly the features themselves i think not all features are interpretable and it was very common practice to take a bunch of features and take cross products and take add a bunch of features and then do all sort of combinations and when you have features that get more and more complex themselves it's not clear what it means uh, when the coefficients sort of look at one of the cross product, but not the feature itself. And it's kind of goes a little bit towards your overlapping stuff. Also, people sometimes define features by running a different model and taking its output and creating a feature. Right? And in some sense, that's what neural networks do. They have this non-linear transformation and then you have a linear layer. So the, even though the model is a logistic regression, if your features are not interpretable, it makes it very difficult as well.
0: Yeah. Okay. So we've talked about like why this is interesting. You mentioned it at the end. We didn't hit at this uh, hit on this quite enough at the beginning. But like for any kind of like social application of machine learning, like this is huge. Like there's potential to cause real harm with our models, and so we really want to be sure using some kind of interpretation, maybe like hopefully we have methods that can figure this out uh, for like why the model is doing what it's doing and that it's not doing things for the wrong reasons and we've talked about why it's hard to get this. I think now's a good time to talk about how approaches that people have taken to solve this problem and actually interpret these complex models.
1: I think one thing I do want to mention about the challenging aspects of this before we go to the solutions, and some of this will become evident when you talk about solutions, is to even think about what it looks like for NLP versus for other tasks in machine learning, other domains in machine learning. and. One of the reasons we've been focusing a lot on text is because it there are some properties of NLP that really are properties of language that really make it difficult to do interpretability, which is not sort of they don't quite translate across all domains. So some of those things, the basic thing is that we have discrete inputs as opposed to real-valued inputs, which is what sort of you can think of what's happening in computer vision. Uh, but apart from just the inputs being discrete themselves, which makes it a combinatorial space, the tricky thing is that not all inputs are valid. Right. So just because the input is discrete doesn't mean you can take any possible combination of tokens and treat it as like a valid input. So that makes it very tricky to do interpretability research. And finally, there is very very difficult to come up with a notion of distance between inputs as well so you can't use euclidean distance and do things like that so some at a very fundamental level some of the mathematical tools that are common across machine learning just sort of fail uh, when you apply them to nlp making the solutions a lot more trickier
0: yeah and when you talk about linear models a lot of the explanation methods that we're going to look at give you Some kind of waiting on the input text, and it's not at all clear that that's really what you want. But uh, again, I think we'll, we'll probably hit more on this a little bit later in the discussion. So yeah, thanks for bringing that up. But now it seems like a good time to segue into what are the methods that people use to approach interpretability?
1: Yeah, so I think there's been a lot of active research. I'm going to give sort of a high level categorization, um, which may not be the best one, but we will go with that. So the first one I'm just going to call feature attribution, which is a set of family of methods that look at the instance that you're making a prediction on and just attribute importance to the input itself, right? So either to tokens in the input or potentially phrases and combinations and things like that. But they're mostly focusing on what Parts of this input are important for my prediction. So let's call them attribution-based ones. Another family of work which is recently getting traction, is called training data influence methods, where you're not quite looking at the features of the input, but instead you're trying to find instances from the training data that are most relevant for the prediction that you made. So what was most influential when this model was trained, from the training data that would lead to this prediction. And finally, I think uh, this is a bigger category, which we may not go into the detail, but I would call it like explanation generation, essentially where you have a model that's trained in some way to generate an explanation itself, uh, which could be a future attribution like one, but it doesn't have to be, it could be natural language, it could be anything. The idea is you you train something or you try to
0: create an interpretable model. So those are the three high-level categories. Yeah, I think that's a nice categorization. Do you want to tell us about this feature attribution method first?
1: Yeah, so feature attribution ones are probably the ones that everybody thinks of when they think of explanations. I think it's very easy to pose what is the most important part of the input that is useful for the prediction or used by the prediction for the model. And I think... The the problem itself is slightly trickier to pose when you start thinking about how to do this mathematically. So one way to pose it is to say, okay, if we change the input very very slightly, what would be the effect on the output? And that sort of gives us sort of one of the earliest methods of interpretability, which was just to take the gradient of the output and use that gradient, or look and take the gradient of the output with respect to the input and see which part of the input have the highest gradient. And mathematically, what that means is if that input was changed slightly, the prediction would change
0: a lot. Minor clarification point, you say gradient of the output, but it's a loss function that we compute gradients on. Can you be a little bit more specific? So people
1: have tried a bunch of different variations, including using the loss function that was used during training. But you can also look at the output probability itself and look at the gradient. I think there have been variations where people take gradients of different things. Or, yeah, there's a huge line of research as to what the gradient should be of. But uh, the idea is some function of the output is what you're doing the gradient of.
0: OK, yeah, the, the thing that I'm most familiar with, though, as you say, there are, there are other options here, is you take the model's prediction You pretend that's a label, and then you compute the loss that the model would have gotten with that as the label. And that's what you mean by computing the gradient of the output, right?
1: Yes, that's a good way to. And I think that's the most common
0: interpretation of that, yes. Okay, you were telling us about how these methods work? Yeah, so the
1: gradient-based ones are pretty interesting. You know, if some part of the input is clearly having an effect on the prediction, they're pretty good at that. But this is also taking the gradient at a single input instance. And we know things like by doing adversarial attacks and stuff like that, that the gradient or the local region around the prediction may not be quite as flat as one imagines it would be. So it's very possible that the gradient is too quite noisy and sort of behaves in ways that doesn't make for a good explanation, is what I would say. And so there have been a couple of variations of these. I'll bring up only two. I think. Uh, the easiest one to understand is smooth grad, where instead of taking just the gradient of the prediction of the instance itself, you actually sample around a little bit around the instances. So perturb it in a little bit, add some epsilon noise to the embeddings, and then look at the prediction and then compute the gradient of that, and then average out the gradient with respect to each token and treat that as the interpretation. So that tends to give slightly smoother uh, gradients. There has been some really interesting work called integrated gradients, where instead of taking gradients just at the instance or in the neighborhood around the instance, they look at accumulated gradients over a whole path through the input space. So you say something like, I'm going to start with an input that's all zero embeddings, and then I'm going to slowly increase those embeddings till I get to the original instance. and In the process of going from zero to the original instance, What was the gradient for each of the input uh, through this path? And it gives some nice properties of explanations that that are useful, but that's that's sort of one way to integrate gradients into explanation techniques.
2: So just a clarification question about the process you just described. So, right, the smooth grad and the gradient-based methods you just described, uh, they are dependent on the distribution of inputs, right? And uh, it sounds like the explanation you get is Heavily dependent on your sampling procedure as well. That's
1: right. In fact, like the, the way they're defined, in some sense, are sort of distribution independent. You so with smooth grad, you just add some epsilon noise to the token embedding, and and sort of envision and things like that. That sort of makes more sense. NLP, it's not clear what if you change an embedding slightly, is it a different word? Well, sometimes it might be, sometimes it's not. Often it's not. Uh, with integrated gradient, also there is this notion of taking a reference instance to start with. So for images, it might be something like an all blank image, like a whole black image, and then you try to get it. But should it be black, should it be white? even there, it's a little bit tricky. And with uh, NLP, we've sort of decided all zero embeddings is the way to start, but it's not clear if that's that's the one because if that has never been seen as input during training, it may not be a very meaningful. Uh, Thing to be looking at for the model so yeah there are these these sort of concerns that definitely show up
0: yeah I wonder if if like uh using a mask token for current transformer models if that makes more sense than a zero token or an on all zero vector
1: yeah that's right a mask token might be a good one I think an unk token for cases where the model has support for that uh, would be another potentially useful thing to use yeah
0: yeah though an unknown word token is like Say you replace the like or or some closed class function word with unk, then like y- you totally change the grammaticality of the sentence.
1: Yes, that's true. Um. In,
0: in In a lot of cases, yeah. And this a related point. You you've talked about like sampling in input space, but you actually did a little switcheroo there. You 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 talked about embeddings, but the actual input space is this discrete language space. I think a lot of these methods were developed for vision where like you actually can change things in the actual input pixel space because those are not quite real valued but close enough that it makes sense whereas in text it seems a lot more problematic.
1: Yes, so that's actually a good point that brings me to the sort of second family of uh, techniques within the attribution explanations, which are a little bit more directly perturbation-based. if I can use that word. I think LINE, which is something we did a while ago, was one of the first versions of this where we literally took the input and perturbed it and using some perturbation function which could be domain-specific. And by perturbing it many, many different times, you would see what the effect on the output would be. And so it's important to know that the perturbation is at the input level, we are dropping tokens for the most part, and things like that. And then trying to see what the effect on the output would be and create a linear model out of this. Right. So for each, the idea is for each of the inputs that was dropped, how often did it change the prediction? Right? I think there's an earlier version of this that's even simpler to understand, which is just called prediction difference, where you would only drop one token at a time, for example, and literally look at what the difference in the output would be. And the drop token that causes the biggest change in the output is the most important one. Uh, Line sort of generalizes that to be to take some form of correlations into account, but in the end, it creates a linear model. There's another variation of this called shapely values, which has been used for text, I guess increasingly more recently, uh, where it s- uses similar notion as line where you're perturbing it, but in some sense it tries all possible, it, it is defined over all possible perturbations of the input, and trying to understand what the shapely contributions are for each of the input tokens. So it's a, it's a little bit more aware of the fact that the perturbation that you've made exists in this space of possible perturbations, and some of them can be bigger changes, some of them can be smaller changes, uh, and give some nice properties. Yeah.
0: That seems very hard to define for text, like what, how, how can, you, can you even talk about the, the space of possible perturbations? Isn't this exponential?
1: Yeah, so when you're making perturbations and trying to compute the sharply values, it's taking into account what tokens appear in each perturbation. Whereas line is somewhat agnostic of it. It just looks at a bunch of tokens and assumes that they have a uniform contribution. Whereas uh, Shapely takes it into account how many different subsets it has appeared.
0: So in both, I guess you're, you're assuming then a particular kind of perturbation. And so like you can control that set, like if you allow like arbitrary word substitutions, then like it's the size of your vocab is like the base of your exponential.
1: Yeah, so all of these perturbation techniques or most of them assume that you're just dropping words and if you're using more complicated perturbations i think they would be difficult to be defined yeah.
0: okay okay and then there are other methods that are what are there, are there other perturbation methods
1: so there have been some more uh perturbation techniques that are a little bit more focused on nlp one of the ones that we worked on was called anchors uh, which also was applied to images but i think NLP was a good application for it, where it was trying to identify what were the sufficient conditions where conditions here are, you can think of them as tokens. So what are the sufficient tokens for the instance for the prediction to remain the same? So if I give you a sentence, can I pick out a few tokens where as long as uh, those tokens appear in the instance and you substitute other tokens by similar tokens from your vocabulary, uh, your prediction would remain the same with a pretty high confidence. That was one sort of technique. There was another one that came out based on a similar idea called input reduction, where the idea was to find the minimum subset of the input that gives the same prediction. I think the main difference between anchors and uh, input reduction was that anchors considers other substitutions to other tokens, whereas input reduction is primarily focused on finding the reduced input. Like if your input was just a few tokens, which few tokens would it be so that you get the same prediction? Yeah, so all of these attribution-based techniques including gradient and perturbation one, uh, we sort of, they all build upon variations of very similar ideas. So we uh, implemented a bunch of them in Allen and p Interpret, uh, which allows you to compare all of these next to each other. And I think uh, that's been pretty useful to understand what the differences are
0: between them. Yeah, that was a fun little project that I was involved in. I guess you described it once as this is what happens when you put Samir and Matt in the same room, because you brought in all of this experience on interpretability methods, and I brought in the the library and like how do we how do we make common APIs to make this easy to use across any model that you want? So yeah, that was that was a fun project. There's one thing I want to talk about on the perturbation method still though, which is you mentioned this earlier when you perturb text, you don't necessarily get something that's valid or grammatical. So like how how can we even understand how like how accurate or or like valid the method is if it's changing the text in a way that it produces ungrammatical text?
1: Yeah, that's that's one of the key challenges I think we're struggling with a lot with these perturbation based techniques is well firstly, yes, in how do you even define a perturbation function that results in valid inputs? And secondly, even if you are able to come up with a perturbation technique that results in valid sentences, say you're doing back translation or some kind of paraphrasing, and sort of people have been doing word substitutions as long as the word embeddings are similar, things like that. Uh, how do you communicate to the user what perturbation function under which uh, this this explanation was generated? Right, so explanation for the same instance using back translation might differ a lot from something that uses a different perturbation function. And so all of these make it incredibly tricky. I think it ends up being an empirical question in some sense, and we'll get to that towards the end of the talk, as to what makes for a good explanation and what doesn't. In practice, it's possible that, yes, the inputs might be invalid, but the model's behavior on them is still useful to understand uh, what's going on.
2: Yeah, I guess uh... The challenge you're uh, talking about is uh, related to my earlier question about uh, the explanation being dependent on the sampling procedure itself right and in a sense it sounds like uh, these explanations are why the model chose to do this specific thing for this input as opposed to all these other things that you could sample from around it it's some discriminative nature to these explanations correct
1: yes that's a good way to put it and in fact for anchors that's Kind of what we did, we would give them the explanation, but we would also give them examples of instances that we generated along the way in some sense uh, that show that, okay, for these inputs, look, they are so different, but since they share the same tokens, the output is the same. And that's one way to communicate it. I wouldn't say we managed to successfully solve this problem. It is a little bit more daunting than to be looking at all these perturbations and from a purely understanding the explanation point of view, it adds more overhead. So it's unclear whether that's, that's useful enough.
0: Yeah, and another way of thinking about this too is that input reduction, for example, the paper that introduced this used uh, input reduction on SQUAD, the Stanford Question-Answering Dataset, and SNLI, the Stanford Natural Language Inference Dataset, and showed that with very small... Or very large reductions in the input, the model's prediction stayed the same. And we can say that, yeah, the, the input's no longer valid English or whatever language you're starting with. But at the same time, if the model still makes the same prediction, then this is highlighting something that is pathological in our model because a, a person wouldn't be able to give this same input. And so, like this, we, we think our models perhaps are doing complex grammatical, like they need to actually understand the the grammar of English. But at some level, at least when you force them to make simple predictions, they're actually, these methods seem to show that they're not actually leveraging much of the grammar of English at all. They're focusing on small things that give away the answer.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. I think with reduced input, uh, one of the most interesting observations was that not just the prediction stays the same, because that, in some sense, is not surprising, because you're forcing the model to make a prediction, so it has to make one but the fact that the confidence actually goes up. So even when you remove things that humans would find very important for answering the question and humans would get increasingly more confused when you remove all these important tokens, the model on the other hand, keeps getting more and more confident when we remove these tokens that to us seem very important. And that's yeah, It really indicates the pathological nature of this stuff.
0: Great, yeah. Okay, I think we've covered pretty well all this whole area of, um, figuring out what parts of my input led to a prediction that this whole class of interpretation methods. The second class of methods that you brought up are what parts of my training data led to a particular prediction. Do you want to tell us about those?
1: Yeah, so this is some exciting work, I think, sort of reintroduced to the machine learning community by Percy Liang in ICML, I think, I want to say 2017 which is called influence functions. And I think the idea there is to, yeah, think about how influential was each training data point for a specific prediction. And I think it's a little bit more difficult for us machine learning people to conceptualize because we seem to think like, oh, even, like that would require such a a huge amount of computation just to even compute how important each training point was for a specific prediction. Uh, But it makes for a really useful explanation because you know exactly, okay, we predicted this to be a positive review because it looks so similar to this other positive review that was in the training data. I think this notion of example-based explanation has been studied a lot in other machine learning uh, tasks, not so much in NLP. Um, but yeah, it's, it's been incredibly exciting to see a resurgence of this. There have been a few other approximations of this also. There was a paper in NeurIPS a few years ago called different point selection models. That's also pretty useful. And increasingly last couple of years we've seen more and more application of these ideas uh, in NLP itself. There was one of my students did a graph completion sort of model, understanding why graph completion models are making certain predictions. And in those models, the gradient-based ones aren't quite as useful. The attribution ones don't quite make sense, but influence functions were really key to figuring out, okay, what other edges in the graph were responsible for the model uh, to make a certain prediction. More recently, I think ACL had a paper by uh, Byron Wallace's group that was looking at influence function and comparing it against some of these attribution-based techniques for a bunch of applications. So excited about seeing influence-based stuff coming into NLP.
0: The when you described influence functions, it sounded a whole lot to me like just k nearest neighbors. Like, can I just find the nearest neighbor of my input, and is that sufficient? Like, how is what's different here?
1: I think that the main difference from just using nearest neighbor on the input is to try and understand what the model thinks is the nearest neighbor, as opposed to just what your raw embeddings would give it. But also in some sense, you want to attribute a little bit more to the training process itself, or, or look at the parameters inside the model and say things like, if that training point was not in the training data, how much would my parameters actually change? and that becomes pretty key when you, for example, have a one, let's say you have a wrong input in the training data, just one instance of it. It's possible that one, that one ins- instance is changing the prediction of a lot of different inputs just because it has a single word or a single token. right? And it's very difficult to imagine nearest neighbors and things like that would catch on this specific single token that's causing a bunch of predictions to change. So you can definitely imagine cases where nearest neighbor would just wouldn't work.
0: So if I, but if I did nearest neighbor on say like the final layer before I do a softmax over class predictions or something, say sentiment analysis, like my my final encoding layer before what's essentially a logistic regression on these learned features, and I do so I, I take that final feature representation and I do nearest neighbors on that would it give me essentially the same importance weights on training data as influence functions
1: i think so the representative point selection work sort of shows that that you could imagine a version where that does quite similar but i think there are still key differences where the final layer you might lose a lot of information about what makes an instance important and that information might be key in sort of isolating what was most influential uh, we know this from Sort of BERT and things like that, that a lot of things that happen in the initial layers, at least via probes, don't really show up in the final layers, but might be key for actually making a decision about why to predict some instance to be a certain data. And actually, talking about BERT, uh, it's also really interesting to see what uh, this influence function stuff looks like with BERT and other pre trained language models in the picture, where I think the focus so far has been to say, okay, we're going to fine tune these. And let's just look at what about the fine-tuning training data was most influential. But I think an exciting research problem is to understand what about why did BERT do something and not think about just the fine-tuning uh, training data and see what influence could do in that regime.
0: Yeah, that seems really complicated to go uh, not just through the fine-tuning data, but back like y- you have two separate training steps with different loss functions that you have to find influence through. That seems really hard and fun. <laughs> 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 yeah, uh, we, we didn't talk very much about how exactly the influence function works. Do you have, talking about math is hard in a podcast, but can you give a high level description of what's going on when you're computing influence functions?
1: Yeah, so I can sort of give a couple of sentence intuition for how influence function works. Uh, but this is just one of the methods they sort of vary in how they do. So what influence function does is you have a specific, let's call it the test prediction uh, in mind. And first thing you compute is what would be the effect of changing any of the parameters of the model on the prediction itself. Right? So you can think of this as just the gradient in some sense, right? So if I were to change my parameter number one, seven, two, three, how much will it affect the output? Once you have this information, you can go back and see, okay, for every training data in my every training point in my training data, if I was to uh, remove that training instance, how much would the parameter 1723 change? And that's in some sense another sort of gradient style update. And this is an approximation of what you would do if you were to train to convergence. But this sort of taken together gives you a pretty good approximation to what would happen now. Especially that ICML paper shows that if you actually do the Oracle experiment of leaving out each training data and retraining the model, this ends up being a really good approximation to that.
0: And so basically we're talking about two gradient steps here. And so you're computing a Hessian over your entire training data, which if you have a lot of training data, like say BERT pre-training data, this could be a nightmare. Yeah, exactly.
2: Actually, it's uh, worse than that, right? I mean, you're actually talking about training data times the number of parameters.
1: Yes. And this is all for a single instance in some sense. So sometimes if you're trying to do this for the whole test set, right? So you want to find out, okay, what were the most influential training data points over all my test set or something like that, or a given test set, uh, then it becomes even more slower. Yeah. There have been approximations that try to get around this, and some of them we've worked on also, and they work with uh, some mixed degrees.
0: Okay, cool. This sounds like an interesting direction. I I get the feeling from what you said that this is still pretty early in its application, especially in NLP, but a really interesting potential avenue for a bunch of interesting work. Yes, I would
2: agree with that. Right. uh, You talked about uh, influence functions and gradient-based methods. Do you can you give examples of uh, specific problems where one of these is a better way of generating explanations than the other?
1: Between influence function and gradient-based, it's kind of difficult to see. I think the gradient-based ones are really good when you're are potentially really good when your instances themselves are pretty long. So if you're, you know, your inputs have paragraphs and things like that. Influence function will give you another paragraph and a question from the training data, and that level of information may not be as useful as just telling you, hey, this is the sentence or this is the phrase that led to an answer. So in, in that sort of situations, I think the gradient-based techniques would, would be more useful. I imagine things like NLI and techniques where it's very difficult to figure out a single word or a few words that are the most important. You sort of want to say the whole sentence captures uh, what's going on. In that case, I imagine the influence function techniques would be a lot more useful. Again, I would point to the ACL 2020 paper that sort of actually compares these two in a certain way to see how consistent they are and things like that. And that might be one of the first steps on trying to see how the interaction of these two look like.
0: Good. So I think we've covered the first two classes of interpretation methods that uh, you brought up. So the understanding what parts of my input led to a particular prediction and understanding what parts of my training data led to a particular prediction. The last thing that you talked about, you called generating explanations. I think the way I might phrase this is instead of, taking an existing model as it is and trying to understand what parts of an input or training data led to a particular prediction, this third class tries to say, let me bake in interpretability or explanations somehow into my model. So I'm changing my model architecture somehow. Do you want to tell us about this?
1: Yeah, so that's that's a good way to put it. I think in some sense, it makes sense. We've been talking a lot about the problems with explainability techniques and like how Explanations fail to capture one thing or the other. Uh, These methods sort of start from the focus of maybe the explanations are as important as the prediction itself, and sometimes even more. And so, if that's the case, why not just design models around it? And I think there's been a lot of work in this area. I'm just going to mention a few, but there are quite a few in this area. Uh, One of the more prominent ones recently that came out was this eNLI uh, data set. Uh, where they took an NLI dataset and sort of paired it with human explanations. So sentences that some human wrote as to why a specific pair of sentences was uh, labeled to be contradiction or entailment and so on. And so there have been a bunch of papers that sort of took this dataset and trained a model to try and generate this explanation. So you get an NLI system at the end that not only tells you what the label should be, but also what, why the model thinks that label was reached. And again, the idea is to generalize beyond just the instances that it was provided. I think this whole field has also been called rationalizing where the goal is in some sense, even the goal of interpretability or explanation is so much higher than the prediction that you don't necessarily even care about what the model is doing but you want to generate an explanation at the end. So so the idea of rationalizing as opposed to explaining is to say we want to come up with some rationale for why the model did something. And as long as it's useful, as long as users like it, uh, that's a successful rationalization, even if that's not exactly true to what the model would have done. So these are uh, two sort of works in this area one last one that uh, very recently again at acl there were a bunch of papers that were looking into this uh, was to sort of start looking at uh, discrete explanations where your model first tries to generate an explanation and then based on that explanation tries to make a prediction making explanation a really key component of the model itself
0: yeah thanks for the overview i think we're running a little bit low on time and this is a Large area that could maybe use its own entire episode of the podcast because there's there's a lot that could be covered here. So I think maybe um, we should leave that section as it is and talk. Go on to my final area that I want to talk about, which is how do you know if these explanation methods are actually any good?
1: Uh, that's a really good question, and we don't. And and honestly, the the reason I like to read explanation papers now is mostly to focus on how did they do the evaluation how did they what new thing did they come up with to show that these explanations might be useful or might not be and it's been really interesting, especially recently in NLP where people have been looking at evaluating and there are I think at least two or three three papers at ACL that were fo- purely focused on evaluating explanations and whether they are useful or not so i think like we started uh, we talked about at the start of the podcast there are many different use cases of these explanations and each of them bring their own set of evaluation techniques and i can sort of talk about a few of them that are very easy to understand but just to know that it's a sort of ongoing field and, and it's probably going to continue for a long time there is no standard metric for for explanation for me i think the most useful metric is does anybody find it useful and so anything that involves user studies or or recreation of a user study that shows why the model why these explanations are useful is a good evaluation technique so i think the easiest one to understand is when you do have gold explanations this is most relevant when you're generating explanations but i think it can be used to evaluate attribution and lime techniques as well where you gather You ask humans to give explanations or ask humans to judge explanations purely on whether it reflects what they think the model should be doing or what a human itself would do, depending on how you gather this data set. So this thing looks like for machine translation, what would the alignment between the words be if you were to ask a human and then you see if the explanation techniques are bringing up the same alignment or attention is bringing up the same alignment. For classification, people are focused on what are the most important words and evaluating models this way. And I think everybody understands that this is an evaluation that's mostly focusing on whether humans agree with what the model is doing or what the explanations are saying. And it doesn't matter what the mod- whether the, what the model is doing is same as the explanation or not. And, and I guess this is going to be the theme in most of the evaluations I bring up. These are all a bunch of what I call necessary properties from evaluations. So each by itself, you can always attack and say, oh, this, this evaluation doesn't target that, focus, that part of the explanation. But I guess the hope is if you have enough necessary, uh, distinct necessary evaluations, you're going towards something that actually shows that your explanation technique is good.
0: Yeah, when you were talking about this, it made me... Worried. Like it sounds very dangerous because if the explanation you're talking about here is just highlighting words, then maybe it's not as dangerous. But if you're, if you started with like generating an explanation, if my model like outputs a sentence that says why it predicted something and that thing is supposed to match what a human would say, that actually doesn't constrain at all the model to actually be doing what it said. Like you could imagine, for instance, some again'm I'm, I'm not recommending that anyone actually build an nlp system that, that that does this but like some kind of like uh lending decision that is like for a mortgage application something that that you would hope doesn't use race at all and the model might output a description that says i did not look at these particular sensitive attributes or whatever but internally the model just did whatever it wanted and it you and it was like totally unfair and biased and so like I don't understand how this is adequate at all like this this has nothing to do with explaining the model behavior, right?
1: Yes, that's right. And so if you are interested in explaining the model behavior, then you have to start thinking of evaluations that are focusing purely on that. Right. So there are a bunch of evaluations that people have done where you don't even think about the user in the loop or anything like that. What you try to do is figure out, using some other technique, things that are definitely not important for the model or things that are definitely used by the model. So either by controlling the training data a certain way or looking at the test label and trying to do some reasoning, you come up with these situations where there are cases that the model definitely should not be using and cases where there are things that models should definitely be using and then trying to see how many times they show up or don't show up in the explanation and using them as an evaluation. That's one way to sort of, if you're able to set this up uh, one way you can evaluate it. I think there are other variations of this where you try not to be, you don't try to construct this so artificially, but instead you start at the explanation side of things and then start removing things based on the explanation and see how much the prediction changes. So if the explanation thinks that these two tokens are most important for the model, if I remove them, the prediction should change a lot. Uh, there are evaluation techniques that are based around these ideas. These are all sort of automated and give you some numbers. And again, there is the caveat that these something that looks good on them doesn't necessarily mean it's a it's a good evaluation uh, explanation system. So you shouldn't be creating explanation systems that are really good at these metrics because you want to make sure the other ones are covered as well. I do want to bring up a few ones that we've focused on that are a little bit more end-to-end, and this goes back to why are these explanations needed. One of the ones that we started with was evaluating models. So is a model good or not? Some of the explanations we've done is to say, some of the evaluations we've done is to take, say, two models that are very different from each other, say, on the test set performance, or significantly different from each other, and then show the explanations for each of these two models for the same instance to a user and ask them to say, which one do you think makes more sense? Or which one do you think is doing the right thing? And at least the way we set this up, this one was, a, I think, a pretty promising way to evaluate these explanations because it comes closest to how we expect they might get used. But of course it requires humans and things like that and makes it complicated.
0: I guess on, on evaluating explanations, at some level you could say, I don't need any external evaluation. I'm computing a gradient of the loss. Like this mathematically tells me, right? What parts of my input affected my prediction. What do you say to that?
1: I think that's that's somewhat akin to saying we can just print out all the parameters of the model. Clearly that tells you what the model would be doing. So therefore that's a good explanation. That of Obviously that example doesn't make sense to us because that printout will be 100 pages long. But the idea is that you need to be aware of the user. You need to be aware of what they're going to be thinking about when they look at an explanation and how are they going to interpret it. And the mathematical interpretation may not be the one that ends up being useful or ends up being how the user interprets it when you give it to them.
0: Right. But I can, I can do these gradient-based methods. I can backprop, figure out which token, if I changed it, actually would change my loss the most. And isn't that just by definition the thing that was important to the model?
1: i think the tricky thing is that what you're computing is if you change the token by an epsilon that limits to zero is the actual definition of the gradient how useful that is for what you're actually trying to do is unclear and i would say not very much
0: yeah also like again where we talked about this earlier but the way i just described this i was i was setting up a toy problem that i that i know was was flawed but you're looking at essentially a linear version of what's going on here and looking at single tokens independently and that's not actually how any of this works and so it's it, like not for a person not for a model that has any kind of contextualization or like any kind of notion of grammar and so like it's it's really not you might you might think that yeah i'm just computing gradients and looking at aggregated gradients and so this should just work but but no that's not how a person would understand what you're looking at and it's not, even like you're summing in ways that, that throw away a lot of information when you aggregate just on a token level.
1: Yes, that's that's right. Yeah, and, and that's one of the reasons why I think the influence-based uh, direction might be useful because it sort of gets away a little bit from those kind of assumptions. But of course, ends up making a bunch of different assumptions and it's a different level of computational complexity.
0: Yeah, and there's, there's even a worse problem, which is that you can fake the gradients, right? Do you want to tell us about this?
1: Yeah, so there has been some work in computer vision and some work that we've been doing that I can't elaborate too much on due to the EMNLP anonymity things. But yes, even the gradient on a very local level can be controlled and manipulated in a way that uh, allows someone, and this is sort of a pathological case, but allows someone to manipulate what the gradient might look like. And in fact, this is not unique to gradient. We've done some work in collaboration with HEMA. Lakkaratu from Harvard, where we showed that even things like Lime and Shapley values can be manipulated by adversity. So if somebody wants to make sure that the race never shows up in the explanation as the main decision-making feature, but the model is still using the race, uh, you can create models that do so and are able to fool Lime and Shapley values and other explanation techniques. So that sort of brings into question like and almost another evaluation of these explanation techniques. How manipulatable are they? Are they robust to these kind of adversarial classifiers? Um, it's, it's again a good, good research direction?
2: But that requires uh, people to actually design models in a way that, that are adversarial to the explanation. Yes, that, that is true. Yeah. Yeah, um, that's true. Um, and I guess a naive question here is why would people want to do that? <laughs> That's a good question. It all depends on why, how sort of critical
1: these explanation techniques end up being, right? So the goal is that if these explanation techniques are really, really good, they will be deployed and available as often as predictions are. So if a bank wants to reject your loan, instead of just saying this is why the loan is rejected, uh, this is, apart from saying that your loan was rejected, they might also want to explain why the loan was rejected. And you expect them to be, accurate. So you would say, well, we trust Lime, so you should use Lime to show me what the explanation was. And the bank could very well be like, okay, fine, I'm just going to create this model that when I run Lime on, gives me a nice looking explanation, but actually the model might be doing something else.
0: Yeah, there are governments that are considering or maybe even have already imposed regulations on when a model makes a prediction you need to have some kind of explanation for it. And so then the question is, how does that explanation get generated? And if there's a government regulation that has to be passed, there's an incentive to bypass the intent of the the regulation. And so, yeah, you, you create this problem where you need to be really careful, really careful with deploying any of these explanation methods if they are susceptible to these attacks at the same time though that 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 doesn't mean that they're that they're bad or not or that they don't work for cases that are not adversarial. There's been some interesting work on this. There, there was a, a series of papers that are interesting called uh, attention is not explanation and then attention is not not explanation. The second one in here was like well I guess the first one was saying hey look I can spoof stuff and the second one was saying well yeah if you spoof stuff it breaks but that doesn't mean that that, that a model that was not intentionally trying to spoof I've now could done too much negation and I can't recover. <laughs> but it, anyway, the point of the second paper is that, that models that are not adversarial still have useful explanations. Like There are interesting correlations you can find with the, the, the attention as a simple explanation with like actual phenomena in the data in interesting ways. So like the, these explanation methods, no matter what they are, can still be useful even if they can be broken in, in adversarial cases.
1: Yeah, and this is sort of true of machine learning as well. Right? like machine learning is useful, but but there are always caveats. And I guess I always try to give those caveats as well. So even though we worked on Lime and Lime is incredibly useful, what I think is, at least I hope, is incredibly useful. But I do also want to make sure people understand the caveats. and It's not some magic wand that's just going to give you exactly what's inside the model and be correct all the
0: time. Okay. This this is great. This has been a long, interesting conversation, a little bit longer than we normally do. We've covered a whole lot, but Samira, as I always do, I want to give you the opportunity to bring up anything that, if, if there's anything you want to talk about that we missed or any final thoughts before we conclude.
1: Uh, I think all I want to bring up is that I'm looking for PhD students and postdocs. If you're interested in it, contact us. And of course, with Matt being down the hall, uh, there's a bunch of interesting research topics that we, we are looking at, uh, a lot of it. Looking at machine learning and NLP from a pretty introspective perspective, are we asking the right questions? How do we even know we are doing a good job and things of that nature? So if any of those things interest you, uh, you should get in touch with me or Matt. Great. Thanks. This has been fun.